ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Dr Tanya Latty is here today. Tanya is an entomologist. That's a scientist who specialises in insects. And she's based at the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. Tanya is deeply interested in a phenomenon that many people become aware of when we're kids. And that's the weirdly organised behaviour of ants and bees, tiny creatures who go about their assigned tasks as though they were merely one component of a singular creature, a kind of hive mind. Bees and ants held Tanya's fascination right up until she came across another hive mind type of creature, a creature that's not an insect at all. It's the slime mould. Yes, slime moulds look vaguely disgusting and alien-like to many people, but if they look weird, that's because they are. A slime mould is not a plant, it's not an animal either, but it can move. Slime moulds have no brains, but they seem to know things. And slime moulds are making international news right now because scientists are seeing them do astonishing things, like finding their way through elaborate mazes. And potentially, slime moulds might actually help us big-brained hairless apes solve some astonishingly complex organisational problems. Hi, Tanya. Hello. You used to have a pet slime mould. <laughs> How does one get a pet slime mould? <laughs> the internet. <laughs> I googled where can I get a slime mould and sure enough a website came up that was a biological supply company so I thought, why not? Why and, not get one? <laughs> and are they like sea monkeys? Are they sort of desiccated and they arrive the mile and you add water or something like that? No, no they came on this agar plate which is kind of like this gel and there were little oat flakes on the gel and then this giant yellow blob just spread across that dish and that was the slime mold. <laughs> <laughs> you get that in the mail. That's wild. So why on, on earth did you want a, a kind of an oozy, slimy pet like a slime mold? Well, I had just started a job at the University of Sydney where I was supposed to be researching collective behaviour in ants and bees. Um, but another part of the project was looking at slime molds. And so I had been really lucky to be able to travel to Japan and meet the slime mold scientist. And they told me all about cool slime mold stuff. And when I got back to Australia, I was like, I need to have one of these. I really, really want to be able to see one of these. Did you give it a name? No, I never really named Why Mr. Not? Blobby. <laughs> Just oh, no, right there, Mr. Blobby, right? <laughs> see, I would have gone for slimy myself. Uh, Good old yeah, Mr. Blobby. Mr. Blobby, okay, all right. And where did Mr. Blobby live, your, your pet slime mold? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Blobby lived in my desk drawer at work. <laughs> and, and how do you look after a pet slime mold? Yeah, they are surprisingly easy to look after. They love eating oat flakes. No one seems to know why. It's not their natural diet at all, but they love oat flakes. You're talking about like like essentially porridge, uncooked porridge. Yeah, uncooked really. porridge oats. Okay. So all you really need to do is keep feeding them oats and they'll get bigger and bigger. And actually, it's that bigger and bigger that's the hardest thing to deal with because very soon you have a lot of slime. What do you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> and how does it consume this oat. Yeah, so when you're watching it, it kind of crawls over the oats very slowly, but it moves. And then it just sits over them. And as it's sitting over them, it's using something called extracellular digestion. So it's producing enzymes and things to break down the oats and then taking them in in food vacuoles into its body. As I hear you say that, and I'm not being 
entirely silly about this either. I'm thinking of a 50s sci-fi movie called The Blob with Steve McQueen in it. Yeah, no, it's 100% The Blob. If you've seen The Blob, that is what it kind of looks like. It's this big oozy thing that kind of just creeps around engulfing anything it can get its little pseudopods on. When you say creep around, can you actually watch it move? Does it move too slowly to watch it move? Yeah, it's a little too slow to watch. So when they're hungry, they can move at about five centimeters per hour, which is a little too slow to see. But it's enough that if you go away for a bit and then come back after lunch, you can see that it's moved. Okay, so we can run from it if we need to, in other words, is what you're saying? Yeah, hopefully. They also hate light. So I feel like that's the main reason they haven't taken over the planet is because light, they cannot stand it. They hide from light. Why? Why do they not like light? Not really sure. I suspect it probably causes some damage to them. Um, I don't know if they're very good at blocking out UV. I also think in their natural environment, they're very sensitive to drying out. And so dark locations are probably the ones that are moister and just better suited to keep them going. And a slime mold, like I said, it's not a plant and it's not an animal. So is it a mold? Does that that mean it's a fungus? Nope. It's not a fungus either. It's a bit mis- a bit of a misnomer, slime mold. Well, hang on. Isn't that it? I mean, isn't it just like plants, animals, and, and fungi? Isn't no. that it? So the big kingdoms of life, we've got plants, we've got animals, we've got fungi, we've got bacteria, and we've got the archaeans. And then we have this group called the protists. The protists are a bunch of single-celled critters that we really don't know what to do with, so we stick them into one group. Oh, so they're like the miscellaneous They category. are really, They really are the single-celled miscellaneous group. If we were being fair in our groupings, they would probably actually be several independent groups, um, but we just stick them together. So what kind of varieties are there when it comes to looking at these slime molds? Within sort of the slime mold umbrella, there is acellular slime molds, which are the ones I study. And then there are cellular slime molds, which are also super cool, but not the ones I study. So that the cellular slime molds, they spend most of their lives as individual cells living, you know, in leaf litter or wherever, feeding and growing. If they start to get hungry and conditions deteriorate, then they send out this signal that's almost like a ah, help signal. And that causes them to come together and aggregate where they form a temporary multicellular slug, it's called, that can crawl away, form a spore, and then the individuals in the spore head get to reproduce. So they're single-celled most of their lives, but if they need to, they form a multicellular organism for a temporary bit, so they cooperate. It's it's like they all get on a bus or something and move. Yeah, it's like Voltron, if you remember that old show. Yes, (laughs) yes, come together. It's a bit like that. But but is that slug, that bus that they all climb on, is that... (laughs) Is that an individual or does it not make does it make no sense to even ask that question? It just icky. It's really complicated. There's all sorts of weird things that happen in that slug because some of the individuals, they don't get to participate in the um in the spore head. So if you're in the stock, you're out of luck. You're dead. You're not going to get to reproduce. Is that altruism? I mean, there have been lots of discussions about what that means, or are you more likely to do it because everybody is more likely to be related to one another? They're fascinating, fascinating critters. Tanya, it sounds like it's a creature that's almost designed <laughs> to confound what we think we know about what a living in, a creature is. Oh, I think that's just nature. Nature in general confounds our expectations of what anything is. It's, it's so much more weird than we realise. So those cellular slime moulds, you were just talking about, the ones when they get in trouble, they all congregate together, form a slug and head off somewhere. They're not the ones you specialize in. What are the ones you specialize in? No, the ones I specialize in are called acellular slime molds. So they are one enormous cell, but that enormous cell can have many, many nuclei, millions of nuclei potentially. And so... Well, hang on, hang on. What do you mean by one enormous... Like you're talking about something the size of like my hand or even bigger, and, and that's... 
That's one cell? It's all one cell. Technically speaking, it's all one cell. And they can get to be at least a meter across. I mean, the big ones, like the dog's vomit slime mold. I know. <laughs> they have some pretty colorful names, but the dog's vomit slime mold is the one most people see. <laughs> Presumably because of the resemblance. Yeah, to... it's, it's not the most aesthetically yeah. pleasing organism. Yeah, you have to learn to love it for its yeah. character or something else. So, so you, you say these things become very can mm-hmm. become very bad, but they're still a single cell. Yeah. So now this confounds the picture I have of what a cell is from high school, which is a membrane containing plasm of some kind and, and a nucleus in the middle with the genetic material. But you say it's got how many? How It can have how many? Millions. It can have millions of nuclei. So it helps if you think about this slime mold's life cycle, which is also completely very difficult to follow. <laughs> but so let's say we start with gametes, which are haploid cells. So a cell that has half the number of chromosomes, like our sperm or egg cells. They go off into the environment. They can reproduce themselves. They can, they can feed. They can be more or less independent. But if they run into one of a compatible mating type, of which there are hundreds, then they fuse together to form a diploid cell. So this has the full chromosome complement. They, beca- they become a single entity. Yeah, they become a single entity. So this is just kind of like mating. There's potentially, what, hundreds of different kinds of sexes that yeah. they have? Yeah, I'm not even sure if sexes is the right word. Right. We go with mating types. Mating but types, okay. In order to reproduce, you need to find an individual of a compatible mating type. It's super complicated dating scene. So, so when these two basic slime molds meet one another that are compatible, they, they fuse into they a single fuse. entity. Yep. Yeah, so this is very much like reproduction as we kind of normally think of it. So think kind of like an egg and a sperm cell coming together. Same idea. But what happens here is the nuclei continues to divide, but the wrapper around it doesn't. So you get more and more and more nuclei, and this thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's still sort of kind of one entity. I say sort of kind of. Because if you were to cut that entity into other bits, each of those individual bits goes off and can be a completely independent individual for however long it wants to. If you bring them back together, say, a week later, they happily fuse into one individual again. So even the concept of individual gets very, very wibbly-wobbly when we're talking about slime molds. What do they look like? (laughs) Um, They kind of look like mucus. So if you imagine the one I work with is bright yellow. It's exactly what it sounds like, slime. But if you look closely, it has this very fine structure that almost looks like veins, like it's got a sort of branching venation around it. And as it's moving, part of it is called the search front, which is sort of, hmm, I don't even try to explain it. It's kind of an arch-shaped thing that's kind of oozing forward slowly, but it can also send out pseudopods, which are just little outgrowths of it in other directions. So it can functionally be searching multiple areas at once because it's it's a blob. It's you said decentralized. It's got, a, it's got a search front. Yeah. This is where these, I don't even know what to call it, the army, the army is advancing <laughs> or the soldier is advancing. What, what's the better analogy there? Does Ooh. that work at all? A little bit. I guess if you think of it as a collective of things and it's putting most of its effort into one direction and that's kind of the main search front. You sort of have this advancing wave almost with the majority of the biomass, the goo in one place, but it can sometimes split off other bits of itself to kind of go still connected to that search front, but go search another direction. So it doesn't move in 
one direction, but does it spread out entirely, or but does it but does it retreat as well as advance <laughs> it, in places? It's doing all of these things, all of these things, often simultaneously. It essentially moves by pushing its biomass forward and retracting a biomass away from the areas it doesn't want to be in. Does it retract, or does it just slough off bits of itself and leave no, it to die? No, well, both. So it retracts the biomass that's in the middle, which is kind of the the cytoplasm, if you will. But then the outside, which is this kind of dead extracellular slime, <laughs> in the lab we used to call it the goo, because it's kind of this clear gooey stuff that's on the outside of the, the slime mold, like a sheath. That part gets left behind. Uh, and the rest of it, the inside bits, kind of move forwards. And what happens to the bits that get left behind? Oh, well, at first it just looks like it's like a slug trail almost. But what we found is that the slime mold seems to use that as information to know where it's already been. So one of the problems if you're searching an environment looking for food is that if you don't know where you've already searched, you're just going to be going in circles, right? You know, it's like if you're looking for your keys and you know that they're somewhere, if you didn't have a memory, you would just be checking under the couch every five seconds. It's really inefficient. And so what we found is that the slime mold is repelled from places it's already been. If it touches that goo, it goes, oh, rather not go in that direction, and tends to avoid that area. But what's really cool is that this isn't just an one or nothing thing. If the slime mold detects a food cue, so if it's consent that there's food in the direction that it's already searched over, it'll quite happily go over its own goo. So it's not 100% repelled. It's just that it needs some incentive to cross that area. So when it encounters its vestigial traces, mm -hmm. it goes, oh, won't bother going there unless it can sense something over the horizon of that yeah. to where food might be. And then it will go, all right, okay, in this place we'll do it. Yeah, it's a bit like reverse breadcrumbs almost. So you have a trail of breadcrumbs telling you where not to go. But if you smell that there's food over there, you go, oh, well, maybe it's worth it. And this is done without a brain. Yeah, that's the wild thing about slime molds. Not only do they not have a brain, they don't have neurons, they don't have organs. I mean, this is one cell. One cell. Ah, does that mean that brains might be really overrated? I think that they are, actually. <laughs> I think that's There's consequences here for academia <laughs> and for the ABC, I think, aren't there? Yeah. I think that's been a talk title of mine. Like, <laughs> brains are probably overrated. I think brains are great, but something we lose track of is the fact that the vast, vast majority of life is brainless. I mean, brains are only held by a very small fraction of life. And those brainless, that brainless majority still has to do stuff. They still have to find food. They still have to avoid getting themselves eaten. They still have to often navigate complex environments. And so they have to have mechanisms to be able to do that. Where do you find slime molds in the natural world. You're talking about how your pet slime mold, <laughs> Mr. Blobby or Mr. Slimy as I would have called him, was on an agar dish. Where would you find them in the natural world? Yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> so they like to live in leaf litter. But because they have that complicated life cycle, a large part of their lifespan is as these very small sort of cells kind of hanging out in the leaf litter before they fuse to form what's called the plasmodium stage, which is that big blob. Um, they can be some of the most common um, amoeboid cells in soils. So our, when we want to go and get other species, we just go outside the building at work, get some leaf litter, put some water on that leaf litter, and then watch it for a while. And most of the time, a slime mold will crawl off eventually if you're patient. So they are all over the place. There was a study I was reading not long ago that went and swabbed um, all sorts of household items for slime mold spores and just found heaps of them. So they really are everywhere. The one I work with is bright yellow, so it's very conspicuous. 
Most of the other ones are kind of gray or brown or white, and they're generally not getting as big as our one in the lab. So they're not often seen. Although the dog's vomit is the exception. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the word mold then, is that is that a bit of a misleading term? Yeah, it's, it comes from the fact that when slime molds reproduce, they do it by forming a spore or a sporangia, it's called. And that looks a little bit like a fungus. It can be mistaken for fungus. And I think when they were initially discovered, that's what people were looking at. Do they stink huh. like a mold <laughs> or smell nice or not smell at all? Uh, so I think Physarum polycephalum, which is the one I study, I think it smells quite nice and fruity, but everyone else in the lab says it smells terrible. So that might be a me thing. <laughs> Again, we're saying your pet slime mold. Should we say your pet slime molds? I, I have given up trying to determine whether I should deal in plurals or singulars with slime molds. They're just, they're too deeply weird. I mean, it's it's a collection of nuclei, so you could say it's a collective, but also it's still all one individual, so maybe it's not. I mean, it's it's just deeply confusing. Yeah, in some senses, it's the most unitary creature you can possibly imagine, mm. given that it is a single cell. In some ways, it's more singular than a human being, which is made up of bazillions of mm -hmm. cells, and I believe bazillion is a technical term you employ <laughs> in the scientific world. So there's this profound contradiction there. You grew up in Canada, mm -hmm. Tanya. What kind of creatures were you obsessed with as a kid? <laughs> what were around you in the house? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs. So, you know, there were no wilderness areas, but there were beautiful little creeks near my house. And so I used to go playing in those creeks and catching crayfish and... I'd flip over rocks in my backyard to find slaters, except we called them potato bugs inexplicably in my part of Canada. Um, I used to catch snakes because my part of Canada didn't have any venomous snakes. So, or, you know, it was totally safe to go around and catch garter snakes. And I'd bring them home to my poor mother and say, look what I found. Are they okay with you having snakes in the house? Oh, my mom's actually quite scared of snakes. <laughs> but she let me keep them because my mother is amazing. <laughs> so, so you went on to study uh, biology and environmental science. What led you to towards these hive creatures, particularly the insects to begin with? Yeah, so when I got to uni, I took invertebrate biology. So usually the way biology is taught in universities that you have invertebrate zoology, which is all the things that have no spines, as one class. And often you have um, vertebrate zoology, which is all the things with spines, which is profoundly unfair. The things without spines are 95% of animal life. 95%. And we're giving them the same weight as this tiny, Yes, but we have spines. Tiny segment. Things, and we're special, aren't oh, we? Is that, what, are. <laughs> no, no, is that what the thinking is? Man? I think we do think that we're special and we just don't notice all the little creatures of the world. Anyway, I was guilty of that too. I took the vertebrate class. I was like, this is going to be great. Then I took invertebrate zoology and my mind was totally blown. Like, Why? The diversity of invertebrates is jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping. Like all, all the things with spines, the vertebrates, they belong to one group called a phylum. So it's the phylum chordata. There are like 30-something other phyla of creatures that are so different from one another that they're in separate groups, and that's the invertebrate world. Oh, so that's the whole wide world, then, you thought. Yeah. This is where the frontier was. Oh, yeah. Everything weird. It's such a weird place, <laughs> you know, the invertebrates. And it's really interesting, and they're really understudied relative to the vertebrates, especially when we start thinking about things like conservation. When we talk about conserving animals, most of that effort is going to the furry things, the koalas and the kangaroos and the, you know, the platypus, which are all lovely animals, but they are a tiny, tiny fraction of biodiversity. Um, the rest is 
kind of the unsung heroes of the world. They're they're doing all of the jobs and they're getting none of the attention. So then from there to these collective insects like bees and ants. Yeah. So for my PhD, I lived in Calgary in the Rocky Mountains or near the Rocky Mountains. And I was studying a beetle called the mountain pine beetle. And it's a tiny nondescript little brown beetle, but it was wreaking havoc because it lives in pine trees. And like live pine trees might not seem like a particularly scary thing to attack. But if you're a tiny beetle, live pine trees are terrifying because as soon as you bite into them, they start exuding this thick, sticky resin that's full of toxins that's sticky and that will kill you very quickly. So is that type of protective mechanism against these creatures? Oh, yeah. The pines are like little biochemical factories just throwing things at anything that attacks them and that resin will suffocate. And as a consequence, there aren't that many animals that are able to take over and kill a live pine tree. The mountain pine beetle gets around that by attacking in these huge, huge aggregations. So millions of pine beetles will focus their attack on a single tree. And by doing so, they're able to completely overwhelm that tree's defenses. Then the tree dies and they're able to take to take over and live. Wow, it's like warriors bringing down a mastodon <laughs> yeah. in, in the Ice Age or something. Yeah, it's it's amazing to watch. And, and what, is it, what does that look like? Do they swarm all over the trunk or something? No, Can you see that? It's, or do they burrow into it? It's not as dramatic as it, right. it sounds because, I mean, these are very tiny beetles, a couple millimetres. And they don't come all at once. It's just if you're looking very closely, you'll start to see these little blobs forming on the outside of the tree where the resin is kind of coming out in response to the, it looks like bubblegum stuck to the sides of the pine tree. And then over the next week or two, as that aggregation really gets going, the tree will very slowly die. And I was into that project because it was the biggest insect outbreak in North American history. We It was decimating the pine forests. And so I was interested in studying how those aggregations are coordinated, how those beetles communicate with one another to be able to destroy a tree uh, very quickly. And what happens when it is destroyed? Will it just collapse one day or it just becomes this husk of a tree? Yeah, over time, about a year, that tree will turn red. So all the pine needles turn red and then they fall off, but the tree remains standing. And so there was also the risk of fire because we had a lot of sort of standing deadwood kicking around those forests. Um, But the mountain pine beetle is a native species, and and to me that was kind of really interesting because we imagine those sorts of outbreaks would be an invasive species. But this was a species that had always been there, but thanks to the way we were managing our forests and because we were suppressing fire and because the weather was getting warmer, all of those things came together to create like the perfect environment for beetles. Um, And so they had an outbreak. You know, uh, friends I have in North America... Um, I noticed in North America that there's an attitude about Australia, which is, oh, it seems <laughs> nice, but you have these big, scary, terrifying, venomous, human-eating animals. And I, of course, say back to them, in North America, you have bears, you have a whole lot of, uh, you've got your own set of scary <laughs> animals there. Do you ever feel like vulnerable out in the wild in places <laughs> like, you got polar bears up there too in places as well. Do you, have you ever felt vulnerable out there doing research? Yeah, a little bit. So <laughs> my field sites were in the Rocky Mountain National Park. So Banff, Kootenai, Yoho National Parks, which I mean, just some of the most brilliant, beautiful scenery in the world, but very wild places with cougars and bears. I, I lost track of how many grizzly bears and black bears I ran into while I was doing field work. My my very first day in the forest, I was there by myself, which was not was not a good idea. <laughs> it was is it a different time for workplace health and safety? I suspect. <laughs> I had parked my car along a fire trail, 
And I'd just gone into the forest to go look for beetles and very classic clueless entomologist, very focused on looking for my beetles. Spent a couple hours there, you know, and then started to come back out towards my car. And just as I crossed into the fire trail, I saw something out of the corner of my eye behind me and I turned and my first thought was, why is there a pony in the forest? <laughs> and it wasn't a pony. It was a cougar. A huge, huge cougar had followed me out of the woods. And was it looking at you? Yeah, it was. So it wasn't just looking at me. It was actually following me. So I jumped into my car because I was right there. And then the cougar went and circled the car a couple of times and then kind of got bothered and wandered off and never saw it again. It did have a radio collar on it, so I figure if I had gotten eaten, at least I'd be somebody else's data. So that would be something. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like to be in the presence of a beautiful, charismatic creature (laughs) that can be so fierce and deadly? It was terrifying. Um, It was beautiful once I was in the car and could take some pictures and knew I was safe. But the thing about cougars is like bears are a little bit more bumbly and you kind of run into them often by accident. You don't run into a cougar by accident. If a cougar, if you see a cougar, it is most likely stalking you. You know, they're cats. They take their time and they watch you. And it's the weirdest thing to look back and think that that cougar was probably watching me for hours waiting for its moment. And I just got lucky and got to the car in time. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So you did your PhD in... North America and Canada, Tanya. What brought you to Australia? (laughs) Well, I was at the point of my PhD where I was starting to look for a job. And I just came across a job ad that said, you know, study ants, bees and slime molds in Sydney. I thought, that'd be nice. I was really over Calgary weather by that point as well. So looking to go somewhere a little bit warmer. But also at, at that stage in my PhD, I was really just applying to anything that seemed like it might be interesting trying to get the next job. Um, So I threw in that application thinking, oh, look, I've got no experience in bees, ants, or slime molds, so it's very unlikely that I will get it. Uh, And then I found out that I was going to get a telephone interview, and I think I have never studied for something as hard as I studied for that interview. I read every paper. I Google stalked like all the people on the panel to find out what they studied and how they might tie into the process. And the day of the interview, I was sort of in a room and I'd close the door, and my fiancé at the time was outside the room, and I started talking, and he came in and said, slow down, (laughs) because I do have a tendency to talk really fast when I get excited, and I was so excited about this position. And one of the questions I asked was, what do you consider your greatest scientific accomplishment to date? And I had just been in Oregon in the U.S. studying banana slugs. Oh, my God. Are you a scientist <laughs> of the disgusting? Is that what you are? Tanya? I love the weird creatures of nature. I love them. <laughs> what are yeah. banana slugs? I they, feel like it can't be anything good. 
No, they're amazing. There are these enormous slugs, like huge, huge things. Uh, and they tend to be bright yellow. Some of them are green and some of them are brown, but a lot of them are this like just vibrant yellow color. And they are huge for slugs. Why are you um, so excited about these, these slugs? Please tell me. It's a giant slug. What's not to be of excited course. about? When you say giant, how, how giant are we talking about? Uh, they're probably about the size of my hand, roughly. Uh, so in length and, and really? probably... Two fingers thick, roughly. So why 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 was this of interest to you scientifically, though? Yeah, so they are very common in the area of the Pacific Northwest where I was working, uh, and we were really interested in trying to figure out how they were impacted by forestry. And these are a native a native animal, so we wanted to make sure that they you know were looked after. The problem we realized very quickly is that to understand how forestry was impacting them, we needed to know how far they traveled over time, like where were their home ranges, where did they live. And there's not really any easy way to mark a slug. <laughs> how do you tag a slug? Well, that was the problem. So the whole project went from <laughs> how does forestry affect slugs to how do you mark a slug? And I spent two months of my life trying to solve this question. And we did in the end. How did you do it? Well, it was complicated. Did you so write the, Tanya on the side? <laughs> Tanya was here. Yeah, yeah. No, you couldn't even do that because they're so slimy. Any kind of marker just comes right off. So we found this thing called an elastomer, which is this plastic, this liquid plastic that people use to mark amphibians and fish. And you can inject it just beneath the skin so it's visible, um, but it hardens so that it, you can see it and it's permanent. It's kind of almost like tattooing a slug, which we did investigate and does not work. So we took the elastomer and we injected into the slug, but then the slugs, because they're, they have a hydrostatic skeleton, so they're kind of like a bag under pressure. So as soon as you poke <laughs> them, the thing just squirts back out <laughs> like, immediately. And the slug gives you kind of a disgusted look. And so then we had to find out how to anesthetize a slug so that it wouldn't do that. And that was another month of work. And so we finally found an anesthetic that worked and was fine for the slugs. <laughs> We found a marker that we could inject in, and we made sure that they were healthy and happy afterwards. And so when they asked what my greatest scientific accomplishment was, I had just spent three months doing that. So I said, I figured out how to individually mark banana slugs. To, to knock out a slug and tag it, <laughs> right. like it like it was a cougar or a puma, like, <laughs> like, like you say. And, and when you were pitching this with all this enthusiasm to the to the panel at Sydney Uni, how did, they, how did they react? Well, it got very quiet, and I thought, oh, I don't know what's happened. And then, you know, after a moment, they kind of came back and continued, and it, it seemed fine. I found out a few years later, <laughs> the reason it went quiet is because they had to mute <laughs> the microphone because they all started laughing. <laughs> they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> that was my answer. So you got the job. That's I got the job mostly on the back of my enthusiasm. <laughs> so what led you to slime mold research in particular then? Was that the nature of the job? Yeah. So the project was looking at three different collective systems, honeybees, ants, and slime molds. And my part of it was meant to be mostly the honeybees, maybe a little bit of the ants. And the slime mold part of it was this really amazing slime mold lab in Japan. There were also a computer science lab involved to try to understand sort of the algorithms and seeing if we could take any of that and put it into computer algorithms. And then there was a mathematics lab. And each of those labs had a postdoc, so a version of me working in that lab. And part of the program was that we would all swap places from time to time. So I got to go and visit the computer science lab in Germany. I got to visit the mathematics lab in Sweden. And I got to visit um, the slime mold lab in Japan. How does studying slime molds intersect with mathematics? Yeah, well, understanding how collectives work is really, you need mathematics as a tool. Because you have all of these individual entities, potentially millions of them, all doing their own thing. But yet, 
as a collective, they're doing something that far transcends what those individuals are doing. So if you think of your brain, your brain is composed of individual neurons. If I were to take one of those neurons aside and study it, I'd be like, well, it's nothing special. Like, it doesn't really do that much. It certainly can't think. But you take billions of those together, and suddenly we have us. We have, we're able to do all of these very complex cognitive tasks. And so getting from that single thing to that collective, you really need maths to help you with that. And so that's where the mathematics part came in. It was modeling some of these systems that we can understand how you go from simple behavior to very complex behavior in a group. Before you were telling me when you had your pet slime mold, that you noticed it was doing this thing, which was it found a way not to retrace its steps. This is a kind of an efficiency measure. Mm whereby it would find a trail of a vestige that left, it left behind and went, well, I'm not going to go there because I've already been there and that's not of use to me in the search for food. However, you said, if it could sense food in the path of this vestigial trace, it would then contravene that mm. rule it seems to have set for itself and travel over its slime trail, its vestigial thing, to go towards that food. This, to me... Sounds like a decision <laughs> that the slime mold is making. And I don't know if this is just me bringing my human way of seeing the world onto other creatures, which is never very helpful, I know. But is this what you're looking at? How a brainless creature makes decisions? Yes. So I use the word decisions or problem solving. Those words are not without controversy, I would say, when it comes to slime molds. I mean, to me, anytime an organism is making a choice between multiple options and is making that choice based on some information, that's a decision. Um, I don't think you need to have a brain to do that, but that it's not without controversy, I think, that, that point of view. I think we as humans really need to get away from the idea that brains are everything and that the way we solve problems is necessarily the best way to solve problems or the only way to solve problems. You know, all of these systems have to deal with profound environmental challenges just to survive. They have found their own ways of doing that. Well, let me ask an, another human-style question, mm -hmm. which is might be a silly one. I don't know if there's an answer to it. If it makes decisions of a kind, are they decisions that are not so much based on rationality, but mm. are based on what feels good? And does that even mean make sense to talk in those terms? Uh, uh, I mean, as far as what a slime mold feels... I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't even really know what other people feel. <laughs> it's, it's a hard thing to get into the mind of another human, let alone something that doesn't even have a brain, that doesn't even share the same cognitive architecture as us. So, but, but when we have a nice meal, we feel good, don't we? We feel better, mm -hmm. particularly if we've been hungry. One, one might assume a slime mold if it eats that little bit of porridge feels good? Does it, it has no neurological No, it doesn't. Outfit, though, it does doesn't. It? I mean, it has biochemistry and it has feedbacks and things inside of it. So, but whether we'd call that feeling or not, I don't know. It's, it's all very complicated, I think. And you said the word rationality there. And that's another complicated word because rationality means different things depending on who you're talking to. So if you're talking to an economist, an economically rational decision has certain characteristics, one of which is that you make that decision using what's called absolute criteria. So if I'm choosing between restaurants, I would assess, say, the cost of that restaurant, and maybe I have some metric for the awesomeness of that restaurant. I do a little calculation in my head, and then I choose the restaurant that has the highest score. That would be a rational decision. One of the consequences of that kind of a decision-making process is that if you have an item you don't like and don't care for, it shouldn't affect your choices. So I want you to imagine you go into a pub and there's a bunch of different beers on offer. 
One of them is very expensive and good. One of them is real cheap, like real cheap, but also real bad. And you had to choose between those two. Depending on a whole bunch of factors, either one of those would be a reasonable choice because you're looking at a trade-off between cost uh, and flavor. But say you walked into the same pub and now there's another beer and it is extremely expensive, but also objectively terrible. It's, it's a terrible trade-off. That beer shouldn't affect your choice. In humans, that irrelevant option has a huge effect on our decision-making. We tend to look at that and go, well, if I'm going to pay that much for a bad beer, I might as well get that really expensive good beer. So that privileges a choice towards yeah. the good, expensive beer. Exactly. It shifts our decision. An economist would say that is an economically irrational behavior. There's now, also another option, which is get someone else to buy the beer for you. <laughs> that, <laughs> that works too. What's really interesting is that we used to think that was something to do either with our human brain or brains in general. And then we realized that other animals are also irrational in that kind of problem set. So then we thought, okay, maybe it has something to do with our brains. But we found that slime molds also make those kinds of irrational decisions. Th they make bad decisions? They will make, bad, not bad, irrational. So in the presence of an item that they shouldn't care about, it's a crummy item, it's not great that will still shift their decision-making from those other two items that normally they would choose roughly half the time. And that is wild. Oh, my wild. God, that's doing my head in then. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was the expression I made when, when we did that experiment. My expectation was that the slime molds would be rational. And I was we were kind of doing it almost in a cheeky way so that I could write a paper that was, slime molds are more rational than humans because that's what I expected to happen. But they have the exact same cognitive foibles that we do. Right. Which suggests complexity. I think it suggests that whatever makes us irrational is deeper than brains. It's something that is across hugely different types of life. What that is, we don't know. Like Again, yeah, it's not helpful to compare humans with, with slime mods on, I know, but a lot of the time I think people go with what they feel like doing and can <laughs> construct some uh, rationale behind it afterwards. Yeah, right? and so yeah. that was one of the ideas about why humans might be irrational, that we're like telling ourselves stories about, oh, you know, it's better for me to get this and that, and there would be a whole thought process. Slime molds don't have that. <laughs> so slime mold, instead of being this kind of stripped down, utterly pragmatic creature that has got no time for that, that those kind of distractions. Mm -hmm. No, that's not the case at all. They're capable of making irrational decisions yeah. like a human. I think it also probably speaks a little bit to our use of that word irrational. Like maybe making choices based on absolute criteria, maybe that's just not something most biological systems do. Normally, comparing things using a comparative system, which is what slime molds and humans do, That'll give you a good enough answer most of the time. Biology is probably not aiming for optimal because optimal is unachievable. We have evolved for good enough. And the decision processes that we have, they're good enough. You'll still get a good outcome most of the time, and that's all we need. Can you give me an example of one of these experiments? Because we're getting into philosophy <laughs> now from from slime molds, which is which is which is wild. What, what kind of experiment would you conduct with a slime mold to see if it could make first best solution or a second best or an irrational decision, mm -hmm. quite unquote. Yeah, so what we do is we get their favourite food, which is those oat flakes. Porridge. Porridge, Un Uncooked yep. porridge. Yep. Oh, well, it's about to be cooked porridge because we grind it down into a paste. We mix it with agar and then we cook it so that you get these little discs. And the reason we do that is because we can control how much of that porridge we put into each disc. Uh -huh. So some can be really concentrated. All oh, right, to a really granular degree. Then. Yeah. Right, not just one flake. No, okay. some can right. be like 1% oat right. flakes and others can be like 30% oat flakes. 
And so the very first experiment we did was very simple. Just give them a choice between a more concentrated oat flake and a less concentrated oat flake and see what they choose. And, you know, not surprisingly, they choose, you know, the better oat flake, the more concentrated one that gives them more calories. How can they tell? Oh, I mean, they must have mechanisms for being able to detect the amounts of different things like proteins and carbohydrates. Oh, God, they can smell, but they don't ever know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my God. I know, right. it's it's a lot. But they are somehow able to sense this. They can do that. And, and other types of cells can do that as well. Even the cells in our body, our immune cells, can sense different odor plumes or chemicals in our environment. So that's not that weird. The other thing we use is the fact that slimals don't like light. So if you give them a choice between something in the light and something in the dark, they will choose the option in the dark. And once you have those two attributes, you can start to do fun things like have them choose between a really concentrated one that's in the light, so scary, versus a really low concentration one that's in the dark. And what do they go for? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Because the simplest way to deal with that kind of a problem is to have a decision rule like, I will always choose the higher quality one, because that's simple. You can just ignore half your information. Or you could say, I'll always choose the safe one, again, ignoring half the information. The complicated thing to do would be to take some metric of the concentration of the food source, some metric of the safeness or the risk, do like a calculation and then pick which one was better. That risk holistic. reward calculation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's what slimolds do. So when the oh option in the I know when the option in the light is only a little bit better than the one in the dark, the slimolds chose the one in the dark. When this item in the light was a lot better, so say four or five times better than the one in the dark, the slime molds would go out into the light. I mean, they move so slowly, it's impossible to detect. <laughs> but I wonder if you see signs like indecisiveness, like, yep. oh, this one, no, that one, no, oh, this you one, do, no, that though. one. You do? you do, because sometimes they'll start, they usually start by spreading in both directions. So if you imagine two sort of disks beside each other with like a space between them, and in that space between them, that's where we plunk the slime mold down. And initially, it kind of spreads almost evenly in both directions. And you can kind of see the little bits of yellow showing up on both disks. And then there's a period where it starts to like just sort of go back and forth a bit. And then eventually it starts retracting away from the side it doesn't like and redirects all of that biomass to the side that it does like. So you can almost see it happening. And in some cases, the slime will just splits apart and you end up with one going left and one going right. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got, like, neuroscientists coming into your office saying, what the hell are you doing on that agar plate at the moment? Because, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me what you're saying to me then is that this decision-making process, again, I know it's a complicated word, but a decision-making process might have not much at all, in some cases, to do with having a brain. Yep, that's right. I think... I think we may all be running very similar software and have similar decision-making processes, but the hardware we're running it on is quite different. So whether you have a brain versus a blob, you know, or if you're a plant or a fungus, I mean, there are researchers studying all of those different organisms and how they make decisions. And they're all doing it in slightly different ways, but there may be some underlying, I don't know, algorithms that most life forms are using. You mentioned that you went to Japan, Hmm. where some of the most extraordinary research has been conducted into slime mold behaviour, research that may have very far-reaching, mm-hmm. very large world, human world consequences. Tell me what you saw when you went to Japan. Yeah, so it was in Sapporo in Hokkaido. And the slime mold lab there is, was run by Toshiyuki Nakagaki. And Toshi did this absolutely mind-blowing experiment uh, in the early 2000s where he was studying 
sort of the mathematics of slime mold movement. One day, he decided to take that slime mold and put it into a maze. Uh, And so to do that, you'd basically make a maze out of plastic. And the slime molds don't like touching the plastic, so it actually acts as walls to keep them where you want them to be. And then you put two pieces of food, one at the end of the maze and one at the beginning of the maze. And then you just plunk a bunch of slime mold in there. And the first thing the slime mold does is it just kind of expands everywhere. So you just end up with this maze full completely of yellow, which is not... Not exciting. What we might call mindless, which isn't a very helpful term once again, I know, but nonetheless. Yeah, it's it's kind of what you'd expect. It's just everywhere. But then if you watch over time, it starts to pull back from dead ends. So anywhere that's not ending in food, it's like, nope, I don't like that, pulls away. And then even more remarkably, it starts pulling away from any loops. So any redundant pathways that are not direct to the food, it pulls away. And if you give the slime mold between 24 and 72 hours, it will most of the time find the shortest path between those two food items through that maze, which is astonishing. Without a brain. Without a brain. Without a neural system of any kind. Nope. Nothing. Nope. And so you would think that the maze was like the weirdest thing that they could possibly come up with, but no. (laughs) The next experiment was they got a map of the Tokyo metro system and they put oat flakes down on the locations of this map where the main stations were. So you have oat flakes for stations, and then they let the slime mold connect up those points. Because what slime mold will try to do typically is it'll spread everywhere, but then it'll retract and create these little veins, if you will, between the food items, because it likes to connect all of its food up. And when they did that, the pattern that the slime mold made of connections was almost identical to the actual Tokyo Metro system. Which, again, what? <laughs> it's, it's mind-blowing. But what it says is that the kinds of rules, the balances between um, efficiency and directness and robustness, the same rules that human engineers are using to build our transport systems are what the slime mold is also using to build its transport system because it has some of the same pressures. It doesn't want to have redundant loops because that's wasting biomass that it could be using, you know, to look for food. So it ends up kind of concentrating on these very direct paths. What's astonishing is that it's doing that without teams of engineers or big old human brains. It's doing that as a single-celled blob. So is this just something that's kind of really cool to look at? Or are engineers interested in this research? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of interest in understanding how simple systems solve collective problems. Because it's not that we would say to the slime molds, like, hey, can you design our road network? We wouldn't do that. But if we can understand how simple systems solve big problems, we can take some of that learning and put it into our computer algorithms. Um, We can start to understand better our own collective systems because humans are very quickly becoming more like ants than we might think. Like we are very connected. We're able to spread information very quickly between us. And whilst all that's very exciting, it also has a lot of consequences, which we see with like misinformation spread and all of these problems that we're getting. Ants, bees, slime molds, they have been running these sort of collective societies for, you know, millennia. Presumably they have evolved mechanisms to prevent some of those problems. And so our Part of what I do and researchers in the field are doing is trying to understand these collectives better so that we can kind of take the best bits and the important learnings from that and put it into our own systems. Just finally, Tanya, it's an issue that might be something that's a little emotional for you, but mm-hmm. is your pet slime mold still with us? <laughs> no. Well, I don't know is probably the long answer. What do you mean you don't know? Ah, Because that slime mold was taken off of a bigger slime mold that's still at that biological supply house. So every time I get a new slime mold, I'm presumably getting bits of the same oh individual. Oh, my God. Um, you know, so it's it's hard to say. 
It's so, there or not. so what you had is like inert or dead or passed away or what? What is it dead? I mean, what, what is it? I don't. I don't know either. <laughs> the one that we have currently, we stop. We haven't been doing um, research on it at the moment. Are you, so, sorry, are you telling me you thought you had a pet slime mold and what you really had all along was a vestige? Well, I had a component of a much larger thing. <laughs> What's even weirder is that you can dry slime molds out and yeah. they form this like resting state that then they can stay in for ages. So we have some of those dried out bits from that particular slime mold, but we also have ones from other slime molds that are still parts of that original slime mold. So yeah, I don't I don't know. It might be alive-ish, alive-ish. <laughs> so just to finish with then, just to sum up, we have a creature here you're talking about that can either be an individual or a cluster. Yeah, it's kind of both. Kind of both. That doesn't have two sexes, but has... Several hundred mating types. Mm-hmm. It's not an animal. Nope. It's not a plant. Mm-hmm. And it's not a fungus and it's not a bacteria. And you don't even know what death is for such a creature. Yep. Yep, that's that's accurate. Uh, slime molds destroy all of our expectations about everything. Well, that's just done my head in. <laughs> Wonderful speaking with you, Tanya, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Dr. Tanya Latti is an entomologist and associate professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.